0: The submersible had already sprung two leaks, and communication with the surface had already been cut off. But not until 32,000 feet deep did the two submersible pilots truly feel terror. A thunderclap noise sounded, and the submersible bucked and shuddered. Pilots Jacques Picard and Don Walsh slammed into each other in the tiny cockpit. Scarily, their plexiglass window, despite being 15 inches thick, had cracked. The intense water pressure around them had crushed it. Picard and Walsh froze. They braced for the submersible to split in half, to implode, for cold water to rush in and implode them. But somehow, the window held. And when the duo checked their instruments, everything else seemed fine. So they talked things over. Should they retreat to the surface or keep descending to their goal? The mysterious Challenger Deep, the deepest point on Earth's surface. The reasons to retreat were obvious. The pressure would only increase as they dropped. And who knew how long the plexiglass would hold? Then again, they were so close to the bottom. And if something catastrophic was going to happen, well, they were too deep to get help anyway. Picard and Walsh agreed. They would continue on, continue down. The only real question was what, if anything, they would find down there. From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keane and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Jacques Picard was the son of the famous balloon pioneer Auguste Picard from the last episode. In fact, Auguste designed the world's first deep sea submersibles in the 1940s. He did so by adapting his knowledge of balloons for underwater vehicles. Picard actually called his submersibles underwater balloons. Similar to balloons, Picard knew that the key to designing submersibles was controlling their buoyancy, their up and down motion in the water. Now, getting a submersible to descend was pretty easy. Carry a bunch of iron ballast on board, and you sink right down. Rising took more work. In balloons, you rise by using a bag of gas that's less dense than air. With submersibles, Picard used a container of liquid that's less dense than water. He chose gasoline. To be clear, the submersibles were not burning gasoline for fuel like a car does. Gasoline is simply lighter than water. That's why gasoline sits on top of puddles in parking lots and gives the puddles a rainbow sheen. Picard's submersibles would carry both iron ballast and a tank of gasoline. When the vessel reached its target depth, it would dump the iron ballast out, and the buoyancy of the gasoline tank would lift it naturally back up to the surface. But if balloons and submersibles were analogous in some ways, submersibles were still a far more daunting challenge to design. To protect a balloon pilot from high altitudes, Picard only needed to use a thin metal shell made of aluminum. But the water pressure in the ocean trenches can reach 16,000 pounds per square inch. That's enough pressure to crush your lungs into something the size of a marble. Clearly, a thin metal shell would not work. So Picard consulted with expert craftsmen, craftsmen who designed beer kegs. These kegmeisters helped design a thick sphere for the submersible cockpit. Picard's first dive took place in 1948 off Western Africa. It went well, but the submersible suffered some damage in a storm during the deployment. So Auguste decided to redesign it with the help of his son, Jacques. Jacques was a former teacher and soldier in his early 20s. While his father was lovably goofy-looking, with messy hair and glasses, Jacques was handsome and fashionable. He had a devastating smile. The submersible redesign took five years. The result was a legendary vessel called the Trieste. It looked something like a mutant fish. On top was the fish's body, with a 50-foot-long tank holding 10,000 gallons of gasoline. It was painted white with black zebra stripes. Its steel walls were five inches thick. The cockpit for the Trieste was a sphere bolted below the gas tank. It had a single observation window, which gave it the look of a creepy, dangling eyeball. This eyeball cockpit had just 38 square inches of space inside, barely enough for two people, especially gangly tall people like the Picards. But Auguste and Jacques were proud of it, and they debuted the Trieste in 1953. They dove two miles deep off the coast of Italy, a new world record. This made August the only person in history to set both an altitude record and a deep-sea depth record. But his son Jacques was more ambitious still. Jacques set his sights on the ultimate record in submersible diving, reaching the lowest point on Earth, the Challenger Deep in the Pacific Ocean. Challenger Deep is part of the Mariana Trench, 200 miles southwest of Guam. It's 35,800 feet down, nearly seven miles deep. If you dropped Mount Everest into Challenger Deep, there would still be 7,000 feet of water above the mountain. And Jacques Piccard was determined to be the first human being to visit that depth. And perhaps the first life form ever. You see, there was a heated scientific debate then about the limits of life on Earth. Many biologists flat out declared that no life could exist in Challenger Deep, for several reasons. First, the temperature down there was barely above freezing. There was also no sunlight down there. That ruled out the presence of plants, which require sunlight to photosynthesize food. Having no plants also seemed to rule out animals, since plants are the basis of the food chain. Plus, there's the pressure. How could any creature survive 16,000 pounds per square inch? Given that Challenger Deep seemed likely to be barren, several governments around the world were discussing a possible use for the place, as a radioactive garbage dump. In the 1950s, governments were building atomic weapons and atomic power plants. Both produced radioactive waste as a byproduct. This waste takes centuries, even millennia, to break down. So where should we store this waste? Well, how about Challenger Deep? It was barren anyway, right? But the Picards were not so sure. Yes, they understood the arguments for why life was supposedly impossible down there. But that's not how science works. Assumptions don't cut it. To see whether Challenger Deep truly was barren, someone would have to go down and take a look for themselves. To reach Challenger Deep, the Trieste submarine would need to be even thicker and stronger than before. So the Picards decided on yet another redesign. To do so, they partnered with the U.S. Navy to get extra funding. After two years of refurbishments, the vessel was ready by 1960. By this point, the 76-year-old Auguste was too frail to dive under such demanding conditions. He remained involved in the project as a consultant. But he turned his seat in the eyeball cockpit over to Don Walsh, an oceanographer with the U.S. Navy. Jacques would pilot the Trieste, with Walsh as his lieutenant. The Trieste and its support ship arrived in the Pacific Ocean over the Challenger Deep in January 1960. Or at least in the neighborhood. In the days before GPS, the exact location of Challenger Deep below the water was a little vague. To find the exact location, the Picards probed the depths with a technique called echo sounding, which sounds sophisticated, but really? It just involved trawling back and forth in the ship and dropping waterproof dynamite overboard. When the dynamite exploded, it created sound waves that echoed off the bottom of the ocean and returned to the surface. The Picards listened for the returning waves with an underwater microphone. The longer the delay, the deeper the ocean was at that point. The longest delay, 14 seconds, equaled the Challenger Deep. The record-setting dive was scheduled for January 23, 1960. Secretly, before it started, a crew member secured a Rolex watch to the outside of the submersible. The company wanted to test its latest high-tech timepiece in the most challenging environment possible. Doing this was actually illegal since Rolex was a private company and the Navy forbid all commercial enterprises on its missions. But the crew was too curious about that watch not to try. Unfortunately, the weather was rough that day, with 25-foot swells. Soon, the U.S. Navy Command Center in San Diego sent out word to cancel the dive. But on the support ship, the officer who received the message just ignored it. This was a pretty risky move. This officer likely faced a court-martial if things went wrong, but he thought that too much was at stake to stop. Jacques Picard and Don Walsh slithered down into the eyeball cockpit early that morning, and at 8 a.m., the underwater balloon finally began its descent toward the lowest point on earth, or what might be called, from another perspective, the nearest point to hell. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up? and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture. No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in True Accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Inside the descending submersible, things got dark quickly. After about 250 yards, sunlight simply cannot penetrate the water anymore. The temperature plummeted in tandem, down to 45 degrees. Picard and Walsh changed into heavy sweaters. Although that was not easy, given that they were practically sitting in each other's laps... For food, they had brought only chocolate bars, which they munched while their teeth chattered. At first, the trip was, frankly, kind of boring. They were dropping at one yard per second, very slow. All they could see through their observation window was a stream of tiny, glowing sea critters who were bioluminescent. It looked kind of pretty, like upside-down snow. But the amusement quickly wore off. After which, it was back to boredom at least until things started going wrong. A small leak opened at 10,000 feet. Water began seeping in through some electrical wiring. A second leak opened at 18,000 feet. These were eerily reminiscent of the leaks that Auguste Picard had battled during his balloon flights. But if Jacques wanted advice from his father, he soon lost his chance to ask. The Trieste contained a sonar telephone to communicate with the support ship above them. But at 18,000 feet, the phone failed. For years, Auguste had been mentoring Jacques through every step of piloting a submersible. Now, the father could not help. The son would have to complete this mission alone. Unfortunately, things got worse from there. The submersible's depth gauge malfunctioned, the so-called fathometer. Without a working fathometer, they were essentially flying blind. Even worse, at 32,000 feet, the plexiglass window cracked. It was a terrible scare. But Picard and Walsh kept descending. They were determined to reach the bottom. But how far was that? The depth gauge just sat there uselessly. They didn't want to slam into the ocean floor and damage anything, especially not with a cracked window. After an empty half hour of sinking, Picard asked, Do you think we missed the bottom? The joke lightened the mood, but their nervousness persisted. Miraculously, though, the fathometer somehow woke up at 35,500 feet, just 300 feet above the floor. Hurriedly, the pilot snapped on the exterior floodlights and stared through the window. At this point, Jacques saw a fish, a flat one like a halibut or sole. Now, for reasons I will circle back to, many people today doubt Jacques actually saw a fish. But if he did, it was about the last thing he saw. At eight feet to go, the pilots finally glimpsed the bottom a thick layer of ivory-colored muck. A few seconds later, they plopped down and kicked up a huge cloud of silt. The duo kept looking through the cracked window, straining to see whatever they could. But it was like looking into a bowl of milk. They couldn't see anything. So to kill some time, they took a selfie. Walsh held up an American flag, Jacques a Swiss one, and they snapped a picture. And unlike, say, Neil Armstrong, they uttered no historic words about mankind or whatever. Just being there was enough. 35,797 feet down. Given the milky water and the cracked window, Picard and Walsh decided to head up after just 20 minutes on the bottom. They dumped two tons of iron shot as ballast. Then the buoyant gasoline took over, and they began rising. The trip up took three dull but thankfully uneventful hours. First thing at the surface, Picard and Walsh checked on the watch. It was still ticking. Rolex made a hell of a timepiece. As they bobbed in the waves, waiting to be picked up, Picard and Walsh speculated about how many years would pass before the next person returned to Challenger Deep. They guessed mm, two years, maybe three. They were only off by a half century. In the years following the Challenger Deep mission, thousands of people would climb Mount Everest. A dozen people would walk on the moon. But no one returned to Challenger Deep for 52 years. The next person who returned was movie director James Cameron of Avatar, a Titanic fame. In 2012, Cameron piloted another submersible down, down, down to the bottom of the world. Sadly, both Auguste and Jacques Picard had died by then. But when Cameron emerged from his submersible, Don Walsh was there to shake his hand. Walsh said, welcome to the club, which at the time, with just three people, was the most exclusive club in the world. Since Cameron's trip, things have picked up. Now over two dozen people have visited Challenger Deep. It's part of a broader effort to really explore the ocean depths. Even back in 2017, just 5% of the ocean floor had been mapped in detail. Today, 20% has been mapped. A huge jump. And what have scientists found down there? Some of the most bizarre forms of life on this planet. And I've put together a bonus episode about those life forms at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. Sadly, scientists have also discovered heaps of trash down there. Even Challenger Deep is not immune from human impact. And things could get much worse soon. Several companies are gearing up to mine the trillions of dollars of mineral riches lying around on the ocean floor. All that and plenty of bizarre sea creatures at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. Again, Auguste Picard is the only human in history to set both an altitude record and a depth record. But a pure scientist like him didn't really care about records. His only aspiration was to observe and study. As he said... Science isn't a boxing match or the Tour de France. Wise words. (laughs) But hard ones to live up to. And in fact, I think Picard got things wrong in dismissing the record-setting side of his explorations. To be sure, setting records isn't the most important thing. But setting records stirs people. It's romantic. It gives us something to dream about and say, wow. And that's no less true with scientific exploration today. Beyond the ocean, Outer space is often called the final frontier. In fact, NASA is gearing up right now to establish bases on the moon and possibly send humans to visit Mars. There's been a chorus of criticism about these missions, as well as the Challenger Deep ones. Critics argue that unmanned robotic vehicles can reach distant planets or ocean depths far more easily and cheaply. They can do a lot of science for a fraction of the cost. And they're not wrong. But to my mind, the critics aren't right either. Think about a Picard soaring miles above in a balloon, or his son Jacques plunging miles deep into the ocean, or some future astronaut setting a boot down on Mars's red soil several million miles away. That's stirring in a way that, frankly, a robot never will be. There is a place for records and romance, even in science. This is the Disappearing Spoon podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast and on their website distillations.org You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon It costs as little as 7 cents per day You can also get bonus episodes and signed books Please spread the word to others as well and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keane. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr and Rigoberto Hernandez. Thanks for listening.